Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing one of the seven topics that's being covered in the Beef Feedlot Roundtable Series. This series is being held online February 23rd, 24th, and 25th, as well as March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Each of those three days, all seven of these topics are being covered. Today in the Beef Watch podcast, we're going to be discussing the topic that Dr. Mary Jernowski is bringing to the webinar series on what feed yards should know about using cover crops. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Jernowski. Oh, I'm excited to be here and get to talk about cover crops. Well, Mary, I think this is a topic that for many feed yards, they would think, how does this fit for us? What's cover crops have to do with a feed yard? We're delivering feed to cattle in a bunk. You're talking about grazing cattle. How do these pieces fit together? But before we got on today, we were actually having some discussions of why we really think there's some synergies and opportunities here. Uh, flesh out for us why you think cover crops really have some application for feed yards, some of the research that you've done, and also how you've seen some of these principles applied. Well, I think the first thing to understand is that uh, cover crops can be a way to put on low cost gain on calves. So for feedlots, this can be a great opportunity for them to buy more calves in the fall when they're at lower cost and allow them to buy these calves beyond maybe their, their capacity for pens at that point in time and put on a low cost gain such that they can feed them into their yard over the winter and even into the spring. Um, so cover crops, especially coupled with corn residue, uh, can be a great way uh, to lower their incoming costs for calves. Mary, give some perspective on what are the cover crops we're talking about? When are they planted? What makes them fit uh, with a feedlot scenario? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that the low-hanging fruit in my mind is corn silage ground. So if we think about corn silage ground, early harvested corn silage, say before September 1st, uh, can allow us to plant something for fall grazing. And that fits really well with buying those calves, uh, you know, in October and November and starting to graze them. So for this situation, uh, my favorite mix at the moment really is about 50 pounds of oats and three pounds of rapeseed per acre. Um, this really provides some high quality feed uh, on average, when we initiate grazing in early November, we've been able to get about 70 days of grazing when we stock at about a calf an acre. However, I should point out that, uh, you know, how much grazing we get is quite variable. What's interesting is that how much grazing we get doesn't really seem to be correlated with the amount of biomass we get to produce. So the amount of forage grown and the amount of grazing don't always correlate. And the reason is because weather during the grazing period seems to have huge impacts. Uh, so the two things that really we've noticed having large impacts is if we have kind of wet weather that has a little bit warmer conditions, um, so the ground isn't really frozen hard, um, then we get a lot of trampling losses. Uh, and in fact, some of my estimates have been up to 70% of the forage has been trampled and lost due to trampling. Uh, the other big one for, especially for the work that we do uh, in Eastern Nebraska is ice events 
that really seemed to hit us about January and February. Uh, the oats and rapeseed are very, very high quality, but that also means that they don't have a lot of structure. So they don't have a lot of lignin in them. So they don't really stand up well. They kind of fall over and melt down and, you know, don't look like there's a lot out there, but the forage is still there. However, if it gets ice covered, it's really hard for those cattle to get to it. Um, so we've ranged in grazing days from about 40 to 100 days if we have about a calf an acre. And um, it seems like we've really seen a lot of differences just depending on the weather event that may happen during that grazing season. So you kind of got to have a little bit of a backup plan. Um, so for me, you know, I think about our backup plan is, you know, we may have to go to stocks earlier or later, uh, depending on how much grazing we get. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about is the performance of calves. And I think this is one that um, a lot of people would be shocked about. We get on average about 1.9 pounds per day when we're grazing these oats and rapeseed mixes. And that is no other supplementation other than providing milk. Again, that's varied considerably from 2.4 to about 1.3 pound a day gain. And again, weather is a huge factor. If we have wet weather, regardless of the temperature, we see lower performance. And the one thing that I think a lot of people underestimate is the impact of a wet hair coat on the energy requirement of an animal, right? So if we have a lot of precipitation events, uh, we do see calf performance decline, partially I think due to trampling, but also because of the fact they have a wet hair coat, then the temperature at which they actually have to start using energy uh, to stay warm is 50 degrees. So if you think about winter, uh, you know, most time temperatures are below that. So as soon as they got a wet hair coat, they're using energy up. And so they're just not going to gain as well. Mary, I was just thinking about what you mentioned in terms of mix of rapeseed and oats. That's a pretty low cost input there. If we're talking about 50 pounds of oats and three pounds of rapeseed, seed cost would not be very expensive on that mix, would it? Yeah. So it's about $15 an acre on average is what that's been coming out to. We've, we've done a lot of different things like We've, we've looked at oats alone. Um, the oats plus rapeseed lowers the seed cost by about $5 an acre uh, right now. And it gains us a little bit of performance. We see about two-tenths of a pound a day gain bonus by adding the rapeseed in there. Um, so it not only lowers seed cost, but it adds performance. So I think it's a really good thing to consider uh, planting that adding that brassica in there. And the reason I choose rapeseed right now is because number one, it's, it's cheap. It is a low cost brassica. Uh, number two, it doesn't produce a bulb. So it produces a taproot, which means in terms of grazing, it seems like with calves, they don't really know what to do with that turnip bulb or that radish bulb. Um, you kind of got to have them graze everything else and then they start eating it. And I like to graze such that I keep a little bit of cover on the ground when I remove them. And so I want to make the most use of the forage I can. And if I have the bulb, uh, by the time I actually start getting them to use that, we basically have better ground. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple of reasons why I like rapeseed, but uh, right now it's my favorite. Mary, you talked about how this really works well in early harvest on corn silage. 
where do we get to a tipping point where you move from, because both rape and the oats, they would winter kill. When do you get to a tipping point where you shift from moving from a species that is going to winter kill to one that's more winter hardy like rye? Yeah, great question. So I said September 1 is kind of my drop dead date to where I would switch. Um, we've done some work and we basically showed that, I mean, even going from September uh, 3rd to September 17th, it's night and day. Like uh, September 3rd, we can get about a ton of biomass per acre and September 17th, we plan on that date, we get 500 pounds. So September 1st is kind of the day I say, if I'm not gonna be able to plant it before September 1st, I would switch to winter hardy. And winter hardy, as you mentioned, could be like cereal rye, it could be winter wheat or winter triticale. We've done some work um, planting these species and a couple things to think about. One of which is that planting date does matter with them. And basically for most of Nebraska, you'll get maximum yields if you can plant by September 18th. Doesn't mean you can't plant later. Uh, many people do, right? But you have to recognize that you get the most bang for your buck, so to speak, by planting on September 18th or earlier. Uh, a couple other things to think about with these species is that management of them in the spring will have huge impacts on calf performance. So when you think about the switch, one of the things I get questions about is, can I plant a mix of oats, say, and rock? And the answer is yes, you can. And however, uh, Jerry Valeski's done some work looking at planting those mixes. Basically what he showed is that if I plant a mix, yes, I'll get a little bit more, say, fall growth if I add a spring uh, cereal like, a, like oats into the mix, um, but I'll get less spring growth because now I've diluted out how much of the winter hardy species I've planted. And in the end, the net result's about the same. So for me, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to try to maximize my benefit. And so I'm going to select acres for my spring species. So my early harvested corn salad, we're going to go with spring, we're going to get a fall grazing out of it. And then my other acres, I'm going to focus on those species that will overwinter and know that I'm going to get my maximal amount of spring utilization. As you look about spring utilization and you think about when you can initiate grazing on that, again, weather is going to be very dependent, uh, the type of species you use, but what do you see winter hardy species doing for us in a cover crop scenario with grazing? Yeah, so again, planting date matters. The later you plant, the longer it's going to take you to get enough grass to start grazing. But if we're planting in mid-September to early October, one of the things we do see is that rye comes on about a week earlier and is about ready to graze about a week earlier than the winter wheat winter triticale. So that's a little bit of an advantage for rye. However, of course, there's some places where you're probably not going to plant rye, especially if you grow wheat uh, for grain. But that's probably the only difference that we're seeing in the amount of grazing we get or the performance of the calves is really just that difference from when we can get on. So between cereal rye, winter wheat, and winter triticale, uh, when we've been grazing, uh, we've been able to start with the rye about the first week in April and the winter wheat and winter triticale uh, about the middle of April. 
in terms of gains of calves on the cereal rye, winter wheat, or winter triticale, we don't see any differences in performance, uh, but we do see extremely high rates of gain. We've been getting about three to four pound a day gain. I, well, we had producers who told me that they were getting three pound a day gain when they were grazing, for instance, winter wheat. And frankly, I thought that was due to a difference in the amount of gut fill those calves had. Because calves and cows, right, they can have a lot of weight in their rumen. And so if they start out, for instance, and they're empty, they don't have a lot of weight in their rumen uh, because they're not full, and you weigh them, and then later you weigh them after you've grazed and they're full, you know, you can have a swing of 100 pounds easy. So if you have a, a relatively short grazing period, you know, you can really elevate those rates of gain. So that's what I thought was happening. But the three to four pound a day gain is real. Uh, we actually do something so we can actually regulate gut fill. So at the beginning of grazing, uh, before we'll start, we'll actually put them in pens and we'll feed them limited amount of diet for five days to get their gut fill to a similar level to what we'll do at the end. So we'll do the same thing at the end of the grazing period so that we actually have gut fill really regulated between the beginning and ending weights. And we're still seeing this three to four pound a day gain. So I do think it's real. These calves, we're typically grazing about 700 pound calves. And that's because oftentimes the system we're using is we may use a cover crop on those calves in the fall, like what we just talked about. Then they'll go to corn residue and they'll be fed some distillers and we'll overwinter them on that until the uh, small cereal becomes available in the spring. So that actually makes a really great system. Couple things that are important to get those really high performance is managing those small cereals so that they keep from getting mature. I think that's one of the hardest challenges uh, especially for people who are new to trying to graze this stuff. Uh, it grows very, very quickly. <laughs> so a couple things that we've noticed is that you probably need to start earlier than you think you do uh, for turnout. So we shoot for five inches for turnout. We also have relatively high stocking rates, and I like to rotationally graze. It doesn't have to be really crazy. I mean, it can be as simple as a two-paddock rotation, so you can split a field in half. Um, but that way you can um, set back part of the field by grazing it really hard and then go to the other part of the field so that you're always keeping it from really getting mature and allowing it to stay vegetative. Um, so our target is to keep it no taller than eight inches. So what we do is we move if the grass we're on is two inches or shorter and, or if the next paddock is eight inches. Um, so the idea is that we never let the, the cereals get above eight inches. And I think that's working really well. For Eastern Nebraska on dry land, um, we seem to need about three calves an acre. And uh, that seems to work really well with this kind of two paddock rotation. However, if we get a cold snap, we're just on the edge in terms of uh, stocking rate. So if we get a cold snap, we do sometimes get ourselves into a little bit of trouble uh, where we don't quite have enough growth. Um, so we may need to cut that back a little bit and maybe two calves an acre would work really well or having a three paddock rotation. Um, but that's kind of 
our experiences. One other thing I'll point out is, again, this is not supplemented other than mineral. And there is some really good data out of the south that shows that, especially with wheat grazing, supplying salt and high magnesium actually improves performance. So in all of our trials, we always provide a free, free choice high mag mineral. And that looks like in the wheat grazing data that I've seen, we can add about a tenth of a pound a day gain just by doing that. And we don't add a whole lot of cost. So uh, for me, I think that's worth it. As you think about the time frame that you're going to be grazing, you mentioned eastern Nebraska going on mid-April or so, a little earlier if you've got silly or rye. When do you typically come off then as you think about terminating grazing on that? Yeah, so really the termination date has been dictated more about the next crop that we want to go to uh, than the small cereals petering out or anything like that. So uh, most of our trials, we go to about mid-May. And that's as far as we push it because we want to plant corn or soybeans after the small cereal. So we typically are pulling off about mid-May. So we're only getting 30 to 45 days of grazing. But it's still economical. We're the cost of gains when you account for the seed cost, account for fencing, and, you know, add a little bit of like 10 cents yardage is we're still about 30 cents uh, per pound of gain, which looks pretty doggone good. Mary, you've worked with some different feed yards who are implementing using some of these techniques. What are some things you've seen producers do around using cover crops, grazing them? What are some things that you've seen that have been effective from your perspective and how they're integrating these into their production systems? So one thing, you know, I talked about using these winter hardy species in the spring. I've seen a lot of feedlots that will plant these winter hardy species and they'll do some grazing in the fall. And depending on when you get it planted, you might get a little bit of fall grazing. What I've been surprised by is just how little forage uh, you really need to get some reasonably good rates of growth on these calves. And I think it's because the forage quality is so high. So a lot of them, you know, I said I turn out at five inches in the spring. They may in the fall have four inches of growth and they'll graze calves across that before they go. Um, over to stocks and start feeding distillers and can get uh, really good rates of gain and not set back the forage since they don't get spring growth. Um, so that's one thing that we didn't really mention as an option. You probably should. Um, haven't done a lot of work with it. And I do know that I have seen where they have grazed it almost to the ground. And I thought, oh man, this stuff is not going to come back. It does slow it down in the spring. It doesn't come on quite as quickly. Um, so if you're going to do that, uh, that might actually be a management system you can use in that you may have a field, for instance, that you don't graze in the fall. That's going to be the first field you get onto in the spring. And then another field that you did graze in the fall, and maybe you did slow it down a little bit in the spring. And that's okay because now it's not going to mature as quickly and so it's going to allow you to keep that higher quality forage longer into the season. So I think that's pretty cool. One of the other things I've seen from feedlots and, and one little bit of a risk I should mention is that uh, these forages are really high protein. And we have had some issues where feedlots have had what we call fog fever. And basically what that is, is that if calves have not had uh, a high protein diet, and then they switch to a very high protein diet, or cows for that matter, there's actually 
an amino acid that can be toxic because the bacteria in the rumen uh, create a toxic compound from it. Now, normally, you have another population of bacteria that use that compound, and so life's good. So it's called 3-methyl-indole, which you don't really need to know. But what it looks like is it actually looks like they're breaking with a respiratory disease because it's actually a toxin to the lungs. And so you'll start seeing like calves that were panting, for instance. They just look droopy. They look like everything you think with pneumonia. And treating them doesn't help because the problem is you need to get a toxin out of their system. So the bottom line is that if you're bringing calves in and you're going to turn them out onto this really high quality forage, you either A, need to keep put them on a high quality diet beforehand, or B, you need to feed an ionophore. Um, that can solve that problem as well. So where we've seen it really be a problem would be some feedlots that normally would bring calves in, they would receive them, and then uh, get them up onto a diet that has an ionophore in it, and then they would turn them out onto this cover crop. But for one reason or another, let's say they have low capacity in the feedlot and they're trying to buy more and more calves, they may turn calves very quickly and have them on a really low protein diet before they move them out to the um, cover crop. And that's where we get that recipe for disaster. Uh, so again, getting them an ionophore and putting ionophore even in a mineral uh, can have a huge impact on whether you have that issue or not. Uh, it's not something that's super common, but you want to, you know, be cognizant of it. Mary, anything else you think would be valuable for producers to think about from a feed yard perspective, or maybe people who are backgrounding calves and how cover crops fit well in that system? Well, so we've talked about kind of, we can get some fall grazing and we can get some spring grazing. And, and the thing is you need to tie the two together. And so the one thing to think about is that the winter time period, there are some other options, but I would say corn residue with a little bit of distillers is a very low cost system. And it fits really, really well, especially thinking about starting um, after your fall cover crop in January or February and going until late March and then moving on to say something like rye can fit really, really well in the system. And for that kind of thing, the big thing I think that people underestimate or overestimate, I guess I should say, is the cost of the distillers. Because everybody looks at feeding more distillers costs more. So I'm, I want to feed less distillers while on that cover or while on that corn residue. You got to remember that there's these other costs that are associated with just having those calves. So the fencing, of course, the corn residue itself, uh, and then just your management. And so you, the more pounds you get, right, the more you're distributing those costs over more pounds. So a lot of times, you know, that pound and a half target rate of gain really works well for economical gains, um, which is four pounds of dry distillers or about seven pounds of modified. Um, so I would really ask producers to actually look at the whole system and think about what the economics look like. Uh, because I think a lot of times it's not quite what your first inclination will be. The cover crops can work well. Um, they can be cost effective. And so can corn residue with a little bit of distillers. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Mary. 
I appreciate it, Aaron. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. Again, our conversation today is from a webinar presented by Dr. Murray Janowski titled, What Feed Yards Should Know About Using Cover Crops. This is part of the 2021 Beef Feedlot Roundtable webinar series.